You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight, the reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.' for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, that not only this story happened, but that you have given it to us, that we might know Christ. We pray that we might know him more this evening as a result of our time together in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Tonight's a torch night, so if you're a fourth through a sixth grader and you want to go uh, with some other fourth through some sixth graders and some great leaders and talk about this text that you just heard, uh, you can do that together right over here in the fellowship hall. You guys can come back in. We'll We'll text you to come back in right before we take the supper together. Uh, This is our last week now in the book of John for a couple of weeks. We're going to take four Sundays together to do a mini Advent series, just thinking through some of the major themes of Advent uh, together to prepare for Christ's first coming and Christmas. Uh, uh, The fourth Sunday will be Christmas Eve here together. So if you haven't been getting the weekly email, sign up for that, but because of all of the services on in the morning and in Christmas Eve that St. John does here, we'll be meeting at 1.30 on that afternoon together. Well, we finally made it through a, several weeks of Black Friday commercials and mailers. Oftentimes, when you're planning and saving throughout the year, it's actually a good time to buy something on that day. I did just that uh, this Friday, waiting three hours for a brand new purchase. Uh, Oftentimes, though, when you're planning, uh, when you're not planning on buying anything, but then you get a mailer from Best Buy or something, uh, and it shows you this brand new TV for $700, you're like, I don't have $700, and my TV is just fine, but it would be practically wasting money not to go buy that TV, right? Uh, And Best Buy has created a need in you, a longing that like five minutes ago you didn't even have. And then 12 months from now, when you get Best Buy's Black Friday mailer, you will think, I still don't have $700. I'm paying back the credit card from last year, but this TV that I bought last year is horribly outdated, and I must go buy that again. As Americans, one of the ways that we try to address and suppress many of our deepest longings and desires is just to acquire more things, to buy more stuff and more stuff and then even more stuff. When our Texas evening, Jesus is going to expose and address our deepest longings and our deepest desires and then actually offer himself, himself as the object which can finally and fully satisfy these deepest longings. So tonight Jesus is going to expose and then show three things, that of an internal need, an internal worship, and then an external response. So first of all, an internal need. So in the past couple of chapters, Jesus has been in the south, in the region of Judea. He spent time in that hot spot of Jewish religious and cultural identity of the temple in Jerusalem. And then last week, he then began to move further out into the Judean countryside. In chapter 4, we find that Jesus moves north. He's headed back home. 
toward Galilee. The only problem is that between Judah and Galilee is this land uh, called Samaria. Jews would be down here in the south in Judea and up here in Galilee, but then right in the middle is Samaria. Many hundreds of years prior to this, the Assyrian Empire came and invaded and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and a major mode of conquest of the Assyrians was rather than just like death, destruction, and annihilation of a kingdom that they were conquering, they would just then begin to uh, intermarry with the people that they conquered to dilute any sense of like patriotic identity. So this is who the Samaritans are. From a Jewish perspective, they're half-breeds. They are half Assyrian, half Jewish, and then after many centuries, basically not identifiable as Jewish at all. They're posers. The Samaritans had built their own temple there in the north, and they only acknowledged the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. So in other words, the Samaritans, from a Jewish perspective, were in a constant state of rejecting God's presence from where they understood it to be at the temple in Jerusalem. And they were in a constant state of rejecting God's word in the poetic and prophetic books of what we call the Old Testament. They were blatantly rejecting God as his, in his revelation to humanity. They were an affront to God and his glory. They were outside of covenant, and they were objects of condemnation of God's wrath. So needless to say, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. If not, they flat out loathed, abhorred, and hated each other. But it's through this land, through Samaria, that Jesus and his disciples travel. And at noontime, Jesus' disciples go to find something to eat, leaving Jesus to rest at Jacob's well, another place of Jewish cultural identity. And verse 6 tells us that Jesus sits down by the well. He's exhausted by a long and hot walk through this arid wilderness He's probably lounging a bit. Maybe his hands are behind his head. He's beginning to nod off a bit. Perhaps he's pulled his turban or his cloak down over his eyes to shield his face from the sun. And then he hears someone coming down to the well. Now let's just forget about all the cultural things going on in this first century context. And just think about ourselves in 2017 Albuquerque. Like, what would most of us likely have done sitting there after a long day's walk like, you probably would have just convinced yourself, I'm really tired, right? If I just keep my eyes closed, pretend I'm asleep, we can just both go on our, with our days. My day, this person's day, we don't need to have this kind of conversation. A pers this person will get their water, and then we can just move on. This is how we would have likely gone about this situation in 2017, but this is not 2017, it's the first century, and on top of all of that, that he's tired and very exhausted, Jesus is a Jew, and this person is a Samaritan. Strike one. Jesus is a growing celebrity. He's a well-known rabbi. This person is uneducated and rural. Strike two. Jesus is a man. This person is a woman. Men and women do not interact in social conversation much less the kind of intimate one that is about to follow. Strike three. And Jesus is holy, pure, and righteous, while we'll soon find out that this woman is a social outcast. Five times widowed and now with a live-in boyfriend. Probably the very reason why she's out in the hot noontime sun, because she didn't want to be in the coolness of the morning where other women would have been drawing water. Strike four. Strike four. 
But Jesus isn't concerned about the social constructs and expectations of his day. And he's not self-seeking seeking and even annoyed with people like we are in our day. Engaging with this uneducated, sinful, Samaritan woman is the same thing that he did in chapter 3 with the educated, supposedly righteous Jewish man, Nicodemus. And he's intentionally reaching across all of these cultural barriers and essentially just saying, hey, how's it going? He's talking to this woman. She's drawing water with her bucket. And Jesus not only opens his eyes and acknowledges her, but he asks her for a drink. Startled that a man, a Jewish man no less, would speak to her, she asks him why he would even talk to her. Which, by the way, if we ever needed, to be, needed a time to be shown what the king of heaven thinks about women, about how he cares for them, it's certainly today. It's seemingly like in the past month, it's like every day we get two or three new celebrities or politicians or men in power acknowledging how they have taken advantage of women, used fellow image bearers of God who are created with inherent dignity and value as objects for their own personal pleasure. And as the Me Too hashtag is now even morphed into Church Too hashtag, as women are telling their stories of abuse and assault within their own church communities, we must see Jesus here in this passage talking to caring for, investing in, challenging, and even confronting, and yet never using this woman for his own personal pleasure or gain. So men of Christ's church, not here. Not here. As men served and loved by a God who is more powerful than us, let's strive together to consider others as more important than ourselves, caring for and serving others and never exploiting And not just within these walls, within this church building, but within our own homes, our dinner tables, our GCs, social media, and the internet even. And women, if you've never talked to someone about something that's happened in your past, we want to be a place where you can share and you can be heard and loved. And if you feel that someone, even in the slightest bit, is being creepy, even if you think you're overreacting, please tell one of your pastors, your GC leaders, anyone. We want this place, the church of a redeemed community, to be different than the world outside. John's Gospel will have plenty more to say about this, and we'll certainly slow down on some of these issues on men and women and just what God thinks about all of this as we keep moving. But in the conversation that here follows, Jesus gently begins to confront this woman's desires. But like he did with Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus is going to begin to talk a bit cryptically about everyday human things, which actually then point to an, an eternal and spiritual reality. She thinks she's just come to the, wall, to the well merely for the water needed for that day's drinking and household chores. But Jesus says what she should be instead doing, understanding that it's him who is there, is that she should be coming for living water. Now, on a purely physical level, what she thinks he's talking about is probably moving water, clean water. When, when water sits, it stagnates. Stuff begins growing in there, makes you sick. So just as we daily need clean water to not only stay alive, but to remain healthy and to flourish, Jesus is saying that he can offer her what she needs spiritually to survive and to flourish, water that won't make her sick. 
Though it comes from a prophet that this woman would have rejected, Jesus is picking up on Jeremiah 2, where God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then he keeps going on from there. But the people in Jeremiah's day are worshiping all kinds of idols apart from God, which cannot satisfy them or save them. And it's to this theme that Jesus then moves in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It's like you, woman, are coming and drinking out of a broken cistern that is leaking leaking and also filled with sickness. But come to me and I will give you actual clean and living water from which you'll never thirst again. Like Nicodemus, she doesn't get it though. And she thinks that he's found some magical fountain somewhere. Where is it? Tell me more. Where can I find it? Where do you drink from that you would never need to drink from again? This sounds great if I never had to come down here and fill this giant jar of water every day. But here's where Jesus begins the careful and methodical surgery of her heart. In what seems to be like a hard jerk of the steering wheel across the road, Jesus then says in verse 16, go and call your husband and come here. That's that's a curveball, right? That came out of nowhere. But like he did with Peter and Nathaniel, Jesus sees in her and through her deep into her heart, into her desires. We don't know what's happened in her previous five marriages, if her husbands have died or divorced her, but she is now living with a man who is not her husband. Now, undoubtedly in these days, as a single woman with seemingly no family, this would have been a precarious and dangerous existence for her. But based on his line of questioning, Jesus seems to be confronting her desire, her longing to belong, her never-ending quest to find meaning and identity for herself in a man. Rather than a water from the outside that promises to give meaning and identity to her, Jesus rather promises a living water that wells up from the inside, not outside, but from the inside, giving final and full meaning and identity Just as Jesus confronted this Samaritan woman with her search for meaning in a man, this passage challenges our endless, endless searches for meaning in things other than Christ, in external things. For some of us, it very well may be a romantic relationship. My life won't have meaning unless she pays attention to me. Until I'm married, my life will continue on in this holding pattern. My spouse disappoints me in many ways. Therefore, I just can't be happy. I can't have joy because of this spouse that you've given me, God. For others of us, it might just be passing the right classes. It might be getting the right job. It might be getting enough likes on Instagram. It might be losing the right weight or making the right money or buying the right house or wearing the right clothes or your team winning the right game or perhaps even getting enough public praise for the right kind of godliness that you think is expected in this community. All of these are very, very small drinks of water. Or perhaps even worse, they're cups of sand for a thirsty man actually making the problem worse, making you even thirstier. C.S. Lewis famously says, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. 
Did you hear that? What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. If posting the same selfie for the 240th time in the past 255 days does not actually give you the sense of satisfaction that you were hoping for, then perhaps it wasn't this kind of external satisfaction that you were longing for. Perhaps it was satisfaction and meaning and acceptance from someone greater than those who follow you on Instagram. Even though your computer and phone promises to satisfy you with the same pornography that has never satisfied you, perhaps you weren't actually desiring some biological high. Perhaps you were desiring acceptance and relational intimacy from someone greater. What this woman needed to hear this day by the well and what we need to hear today in our pews is whatever we are worshiping on the outside of us, on the external, whatever promises to make us happy, whatever we are convinced that we cannot live without, these are broken cisterns, broken things of water. They're leaking and actually holding sickness inside. They promise, they they bring us to the wedding altar, but then abandon us at the moment of truth. They are the cruelest slave master who keeps promising freedom when he knows that there is only death waiting at the end. What Jesus offers her here and what he offers us is himself. Rather than these false gods who never satisfy you when you gain them and then punish you when you fail them, Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only Savior who, if you gain him, will satisfy you. And then will, and when you fail him, will forgive you. This is good news. This is just as Clint read earlier from Matthew 11. Jesus invites us to come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. This is the rest of the gospel of living water. So Jesus exposes an internal need and now he'll show that experiencing him as the fulfillment of that need will actually then provoke an internal worship. Because of this conversation, she concludes that Jesus is a prophet. He he speaks for God. So she invites him to settle a question, a centuries-old question between them, between Samaritans and Jews. She asks him to settle once and for all if the place of God's presence, the place of worship, ought to be down in the south in Jerusalem at the Jewish temple, or if the place of God's presence, the place of worship, should be in the north in Samaria at Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan temple. So Jesus answers her question with neither, neither place. Verse 21, the hour, remember the hour in John's gospel is nearly always pointing us forward to the hour of Jesus' coming death on the cross. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Knowing Jesus' theology of the temple from chapter 2, that he himself is the temple of God, the place where God dwells on earth, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place of sacrifice and atonement and the forgiveness of sins, then neither of these temples will be needed. But just to clarify to her, and in response, and in a response that clearly absolves John from being anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, now let the record state, though, that neither of these places will finally be the place of worship. Verse 22, you worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
We, we Jews, worship what we know, that for salvation is from the Jews. Not that all Jews will be saved. Nearly the entire gospel of John proves that point. Most recently with Nicodemus, it was not his first Jewish birth which saved him, but his second spiritual birth which saves him. But that it's through the Jewish people, through the promises and blessings of God to and through them that God would bless the entire world. It's through them, through Jesus, who is from the tribe of Judah, through their prophets that prepared and promised his coming, through even their leadership and people who would ultimately reject him and put him on the cross that God would explode then to the nations. Like we said in Genesis, Israel is like the water hose nozzle. It's through that nozzle which God waters the entire dry and brown backyard, bringing it to life. But that's not the point, (laughs) ma'am. Jesus seems to go on. Even though the Jews have it right at the present, they have the truth. Verse 23, the hour is coming. Again, the hour. And then interestingly, it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. There's coming a time where true worshipers of God can't be identified by where they worship, but how they worship. How they worship in spirit and truth not at the building in which they're worshiping. Jesus' hour is coming. Indeed, his ministry of crucifixion is already in motion. That's what he's saying. It's now here. And it's because of this dawning hour that worshipers will not only respond to God with correct theology, but with their very being animated by and sharing in the triune life of God. Like, man, just jump ahead and read Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 if you can't wait for a few more months to think about what worshiping in spirit and truth actually looks like. But as we've talked about several times, all of life is worship. And at any given moment, we are bowing our knee or worshiping some person, some thing, some idea. So worshiping God in spirit and in truth has implications for our entire life. But it certainly applies to how we go about structuring and responding to God in worship together here on Sunday evenings. I think there are two ends of the spectrum that any church service can tend toward. One that focuses on the spirit. And by the way, I think Jesus here is not talking about the coming Holy Spirit, but an inner man, the spirit of a person. So, One, a kind of church service that focuses on the spirit, the inner person, the emotions by arranging the lights and the sound and this and that uh, to just evoke emotion. Singing songs without too much theological depth, perhaps very repetitively even to to evoke some emotional response. Preaching in in a motivational like how-to pep talk to get us emotionally excited to face yet another week. But then on the other end of the spectrum is one that focuses perhaps too much on the truth, arranging the service to teach deep, deep theology, singing unemotional songs that had better not evoke a raised hand, preaching just one or two verses per week so that like as a water filter, we can't let even the most minute bit of theology pass us by but that the truth doesn't have any effect on us emotionally and that we're mostly kind of just stuffy and grumpy people. 
While I freely admit that we can tend toward the truth end of the spectrum here together, it's funny talking to you, many of you, and that how your tradition and your own personal experience shapes what you think we tend toward here. Several of you think that we are way too loosey-goosey and free-form here at Christ Church. But here's the point. We have a long way to go in this, but we want to be right here in the middle, not on either end of this spectrum, but in spirit and truth, worshiping together, unapologetically theological. Everything that we do, say, in structure, we want to be formed around the revealed word of God. We pick songs not just because of the emotions that they evoke here and now in the present, but because of how they will ground us or anchor us many years later in the future. That said, Charles Spurgeon says that God does not regard our voices, he hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. Meaning, perhaps tonight you sang, but you did not worship. Your mouth moved, words came out, the same words that were coming from all around you, right? But there was no emotion of reverence, of gratitude, of love, of joy. In which case, you did not worship. You just moved your mouth and some words came out. Perhaps you read along with the confession, but you were thinking about something else. You weren't actually thinking and dwelling on and meaning what you were speaking aloud. And if that's the case, you did not confess your sin. Perhaps you were tempted toward mindlessly dropping a check in this giving box over here. In which case, you did not worship in grateful stewardship of the things that God has given you. All of that to say, if you raise your hands at a concert or you raise your hands at a football game in excitement, then please feel free to raise your hands here in worship out of joy, out of gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done in the gospel. An actual emotional response for what he has done and can evoke. But just don't raise your hand like at verse 3 when the music then begins, gets a little bit louder right? Just because it's just this thing, right? Uh, but because of what God is actually doing in you inwardly, the Father is seeking true worshipers who through the coming hour, the coming cross of Christ, that worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth, wherever they are at all times, not just in some building once a week or once a year. Emotionally, in our inner man, but always shaped by the truth of God's revealed word. It's good for us individually and corporately to ongoingly uh, reflect on, observe on if we're beginning to swing one way or the other towards one end of the pendulum. But I think we're moving in the right direction. It's good to have ourselves reoriented here, though. So after hearing and reflecting on all this, the woman believes she moves from just calling Jesus sir and even prophet as she then gets to, to then Jesus confirming to her that he is the very Messiah. Many, oftentimes many commentators don't lump this into the so-called I am statements of the gospel of John, but here's the first time Jesus says, I am something. And he says, I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. He is the Messiah that she has longed for. And if she has been shown her deep need and then, 
she has been shown that she even needs a deep internal worship, then she then rightly moves toward an external response. She goes into town, her Samaritan town, and she says, come and see a man. Like Philip in chapter 1, after seeing and believing, her immediate response is to go and tell others about Jesus, which is natural, isn't it? We become evangelists for the things that we love. If you see some great new series on Netflix that you loved and enjoyed, you want to tell others about it because you want them to enjoy it also. If you went on a great place of vacation, come, you come back and you intuitively, this is what you do, you begin to tell others about it because you want them to experience the same joy that you did there. This woman has just experienced the first satisfying drink of eternal living water of her life. So naturally, she wants others to enjoy it too. And as Jesus begins talking about food and farming with his disciples, then many Samaritans begin approaching them on the road. Presumably, as they in the distance are coming towards Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says, look, some people plant, some water, some sow, some reap, but look, right, right down there, right, right down the road, the harvest is right here, right now. It's amazing. It's coming right towards us. We didn't even have to do anything. Perhaps word of John the Baptist preaching had come before Jesus. Perhaps others were preaching about repentance and the Messiah up in Samaria before. And undoubtedly, some of these folks who came to believe on this day are still around in Samaria when Philip arrives in Acts 8 and reaps an even bigger harvest. But how encouraging to all of us that it isn't our job to save and bring life. Only the Spirit of God who moves mysteriously like the wind can do that. But our job, is, like faithful sowers, is to just go and tell. To go to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and invite them to come and see a man. A man who knows and sees all that I ever did and thought and yet still loves me. In verse 39, many Samaritans believed in him because of the woman's testimony, her faithful sowing. And then many more believed in verse 40, 41 because of his word, not his signs that he will continue to rebuke the Jews for needing and demanding throughout the rest of this gospel. They just simply believed him for his word. And the Samaritans themselves believed that this Jewish man had come as the savior of the world, not of Samaria, not of Judea, or even just Judea and Samaria, but for all people of all nations, the living waters to the nations that Clint read from Isaiah 12. Samaritans were humans, part of the world, which as a whole had rejected God and deserved his anger. But, but, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is our first glimpse of that right here in chapter four of the world, the nations coming to believe in Christ as the savior of the world. And what's incredible is that the only reason that all of this happened was because Jesus was first tired and exhausted and thirsty. The eternal and creative God of the universe sat down by a well in need of water. 
He took on human flesh and experienced exhaustion, experienced sunburn and cracked lips and a deep thirst. And then he asked for a drink. But amazingly, this is not the last time in John's gospel that Jesus would say he's thirsty. Moments from death on the cross, John, Jesus will say in John 19, I thirst. Which, just as he meant in the conversation with the woman at this well, Jesus will be speaking on multiple levels. He's actually really thirsty. He's been sweating and bleeding, and he's likely very, very physically thirsty. But for the first time in all eternity, he's also experiencing the loss of relationship with the Father as he bears the weight of the punishment for the sin of you and me. He thirsts. He's been cut off from the source of living water for the first time and entirely for you and for me. Incredible. Because Jesus will later experience deep and eternal thirst on his death, at his death on the cross, you and I are actually now able to experience deep and eternal satisfaction through his life. This is amazing. This is more than a man. What a Messiah. What a God. What a gospel. What a salvation. What a satisfaction this offers to his people who would drink from this well of eternal waters. Let's pray for more of that together. Father, we are thankful that you have not remained in heaven aloof from us, that in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, you became a man. You took on our flesh and took on our exhaustion and our thirst, and you took on our own sin upon your shoulders, upon your head, and you, the wounds which mar the chosen ones, or the chosen one now have brought many sons to glory. Father, amazing love. What a gospel. Father, we pray that we would believe this more deeply, that we would be more and more each day of our life more satisfied and fulfilled by this, this well of living waters. And we pray that we would come to it and draw from it more and more and more. Father, we pray perhaps for the first time that some here this evening might draw from the well of living water for the first time, might drink deeply of your life and death and resurrection, of your life for theirs, of your death for theirs, that their sins might be forgiven and that they might find rest in you. Father, we pray for all of these things for our sake, for our joy, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.